0: Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. Today's episode compares the sophisticated with the less sophisticated. Emily compares two dances, one popular with the courts and one popular with people working for the court. Jill compares two Rieslings and explores how Riesling relates to class. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music.
1: Hello, Jill Hello, Emily Reese. How are you? I'm wonderful. The sun is out. It's a beautiful day. And where are we? We aren't
2: outside. We're not landscaping. We're not taking sun. We are inside. Working hard in a padded space, celebrating three-quarter time and Riesling people.
1: Three-four time.
2: Yeah. Did I say three-quarter? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Technically three-four. Three-four. Yeah, okay. My bad. Three-four time. We're celebrating uh, Riesling and... Three fourth time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because, yes, they they they, in an origin sense, they do go together, and we'll talk about that in, in in moments. But we I feel like did we both approach this? And I was talking to Emily just briefly about how I approached uh, our uh, topics of conversation today, minuet and trios and waltzes and Rieslings. I didn't choose Riesling because of where. They come from their spiritual home, being the spiritual home of the waltz as well. (laughs) Um, But I chose them because of their um, how they relate to or related to more of class and class structure. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and with the wines, I chose a blue chip Riesling, and then I chose from Austria, and then I chose a very similarly made, but a wine that's more for the people.
1: But a Riesling, right? But
2: also a Riesling to be able to compare. Yes, Mm -hmm. they're going to be noticeably different because of where they're from. But you'll notice a difference in energy, which I think you'll for sure notice that in the Minuet Trio and the Waltzes. Wow, I'm talking too much.
1: No, I love it. Bring it. Bring it.
2: Let's, should we? Do you want a minuet in, or do you want a
1: waltz first? Well, minuets, historically speaking, were earlier than the waltz. So maybe we should start there. Let's do that. With a minuet and trio. And just to kind of reiterate a little bit about what you were saying about the class structure, about how, you know, one is refined and, and maybe more noble. I don't know what words we'll use to describe it when we drink it, but the blue chip Austrian Riesling is like the fancy one and the minuet is kind of the fancy dance it's it's the nobility it's for royalty it's the people who have money go to these balls and dance these minuets and uh uh the the waltz was for you know the help basically and became for the nobility because it was so fun and so popular and blah 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 so in any event that's kind of the correlation there but the minuet and trio um uh it started off as basically just a minuet, and it, it's a dance. It's in three, four time, but there's not really – there's touching, but there's not really touching. Like, I'm not a dance expert, so I, I can't, like, be like, here's how you dance a minuet. But mm-hmm. I know that it's very uh, s- square in in sure. its – you know, like, you're not going to be pressing up against that person like you do in a waltz, right? Yeah,
2: yep. And it, did it develop as a dance – Was it a dance first and then it became a a musical style in and of itself?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So dance first and then uh, people like um, uh, Jean Baptiste Lully. So this is very early Baroque. um, So, you know, 1600s, maybe mid 1600s. They're starting to use them in a lot of opera and um, theater music, like incidental music for plays or. Opera music—you're seeing all these minuets pop up, and um, eventually, Lee or someone around that time added the trio, and it was thought to be actually a trio of musicians that would play that section. So they'd play this uh, melody minuet, they'd play the melody a second time, probably, then they'd go off into this other key for a minute and do this other thing, and that other thing was the trio, and. For a while there, it really was like two oboes and a bassoon or something like that. Uh, but then it became just its own thing, and it's still called the trio, even if there's 60 musicians playing, right? It <laughs> they just still call
2: it minuet and trio. Minuet and trio,
1: regardless <laughs> of how many people are playing. So, oh, I love it. And then you go back to the minuet to, to round things out. And the the trio section is supposed to sound markedly different. Sometimes it's in a minor key instead of the major key of the minuet or vice versa. If it's a minor key minuet, maybe the trio is in the major key. Uh, Maybe it's in... Uh, the dominant key, you know. So instead of uh, if we're in C major for the minuet, maybe the trios in G major, or F major, some closely related key in some way. But it's
2: always a little different.
1: It's always going to be a little different.
2: Oh, Yeah, okay. and the
1: instrumentation will probably shake up a little as well because it, it it's it's supposed to sound different, and the tempo usually is a little different as well for the trio, and then it goes back to uh, uh, the minuet tempo.
2: And and can you explain to me why? So I was um, listening to. You had sent me, specifically you wanted to show um, Lou Matan from Haydn. Yes. And you, you had said, and if you have time, listen to the whole thing. And as I listened to the whole thing multiple times, I realized, well, wait a minute. So the Minuet and Trio is is partway through that. Mm-hmm. So was it always like snuck in as a sort of mo- like movement of a greater... Work slash symphony.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. So in the Baroque era, you're talking classical era when we're talking about Joseph Haydn. So we're talking post-1750, uh, Age of Enlightenment kind of era for Haydn, right? In uh, that time, it was incredibly common with Mozart as well to, to do that. Uh, and, and I'll come back to that in a second. But in the Baroque era, it was often a movement in a Baroque suite of some kind. Okay. So that could be literally called a suite for keyboard or a suite for violoncello or something, or it could have been called a partita. Or so a, no,
2: no one ever took a minuet and trio and said, here, sports fans, you're
1: going to have <laughs> 17 movements of yeah, no. just a minuet and no, trio. but what happened in the classical era then is um, – uh, you know, we've talked about Haydn before and Haydn's contribution to the world of uh, what a symphony is. Mm-hmm. Also, we've, I think, briefly touched on a couple different times how important he was to the, to the uh, genre of a string quartet. Did people
2: call him the father of – I feel like I've read yeah, that. Yeah, people the call him the father or of symphony, which okay.
1: is – str- I mean, he perfected the genre in a lot of ways. But there were people before him, lots of people before him yeah. who wrote symphonies. And one of those uh, people was Stamitz who worked in Mannheim in Germany. And in Mannheim, they had this, like, bitchin' orchestra. Like, seriously, like, all the players were just top-notch, virtuosic, amazing musicians. And there was, like, this composer collective, sort of, that wrote for them, and it was called the Mannheim School. So there are these these fellas who wrote just music for this orchestra. Uh, Stamitz was one of them, and... um, uh, One of the other uh, super famous names from that time, Franz Richter, that's the one. Uh, Those two were probably the most famous of the set of composers that worked with the orchestra or led it at some point. And then Stamitz had two sons as well who did the same thing. They were also composer-conductors. So uh, out of the Mannheim School came this idea of this is how a symphony is structured and we're going to use a minuet and trio for the third movement most of the time. Okay. And so Haydn just kind of carried that torch and just made things a lot better and brighter. Cool. With his torch. You had asked uh, about Haydn, Haydn's minuet and how that ended up being in the symphony. So, you know, Mannheim School, the Mannheim School responsible for a lot of really amazing things uh, in the classical era that kind of developed orchestrally, which we can talk, we should talk about someday, uh, but not today. Um, uh, other than to say that that just became commonplace during that era to put a minuet and trio in, in as the third movement. Um, yeah. But if you listen to a Bach Menuet and Trio, it's it's going to pretty much have the same form.
2: I'm looking at my notes here that mm-hmm. there's a format of having, like, the first section, the second section, and then it going to repeat the first section, but a little bit more elaborate and ornate. Is that... Perhaps. So they yeah. have some sort of... It, yes, it has to be in three-quarter time. You three, talked four. a little bit... of mm-hmm. Three-four. It's it okay. <laughs> to, it has to be in three-four time. It yep. has to be, um, you know, you've got the key that's similar, but just a little bit different. And then you've got this, like orchestration between the trio or however many people mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and the the greater symphony symphony or orchestra yep. but so then there are further rules of these like sections that they have to kind of go back and forth a little bit
1: a little i mean there there are variations and there's always exceptions to every almost every rule in music i can think of some steadfast rules but there are some uh flexible ones as well. And form usually uh, has a bit of flexibility in it. And with menuet and trio, a lot of times what you'll hear is um, what I was talking about earlier. And it's kind of what you're saying, A, A, B, A, Mm -hmm. except it might be A, then A prime, then B, then A. So the A prime is like a little bit different than the first time you heard A. Okay. Sometimes they'll just straight up put a repeat sign at the end of the A section. You know what I mean? So three, four time, by the way, means there's three beats to a measure and that the quarter note gets the beat. So uh, it it just has to be maybe not always, always, always in 3-4, but maybe some kind of triple meter. So maybe 3-8. Is 6-8 a triple meter? 6-8 is a compound meter because, yeah, let's not go there. Let's Oof. not go there because... Six eight can be heard in two, but there are menuettes that are in six eight. But so it's, yeah, it's weird. So this is from one of Haydn's earliest symphonies. This is actually the very first year that he worked for the Esterhazy family, which is where Haydn worked for decades and uh, was able to hone his craft. While working for that court, but it is important to remember he was writing for a court band for royalty, you know, for nobility or something. I, I'm not quite sure what the difference is because I'm not British. Um, but I think feel like they have a good handle on their words and terms <laughs> around royalty and nobility. Um, so uh, that was, by the way, 1761, I believe, that Haydn wrote. Yep. So
2: he was 29, right? The bastard yes. was
1: twenty nine years yeah, old. Twenty nine. I feel real mediocre. Uh, well, he had a court job before that, too, uh, for a brief period. He was a Kapellmeister uh, somewhere, which is music director. Um, twenty
2: nine.
1: He, all he I'm was saying. before that, He's though. I know. <laughs> I know. And so, so he worked for the Esterhazy family for many, many years, and this was his first year there, which is uh, pretty neat. And this symphony has a nickname as. Often, Haydn's symphonies do. Also, they rarely came from his own mouth or pen. They were always given. Mm. Um, This one is called Morning because of the first movement, which sounds like a sunrise to start. Um, but uh, the minuet and trio, not so much. I mean, it's just I just love this minuet and trio, and it's very simple and adorable. And I love the trio part is wonderful because the trio is actually a duet between bassoon and bass, which is just a funny, awesome combination to have written something like that. Let's do it! Let's do it! Let's do it! Let's yeah, do it! Let's do She's like, shut up and play I'm the so music. I'm so excited. One, two, three, one, two, three, one.
2: And fair to say to notice the slower tempo compared to the next that we'll listen to? Yes.
1: Yes. Very casual tempo, often. You'll hear fast minuets, though, as well. I mean it really does sound quite proper
2: yeah just imagine looking that young lass or chap in the eye and being like yeah can't touch you or at least maybe not
1: more (laughs) (laughs) than your pinky (laughs) exactly while i wear these gloves Septive Cadence. Here comes the trio bassoon and bass. I read somewhere about this symphony, because as I mentioned, this is one of my favorites. I love love this whole symphony. I just think it's delightful. And uh, I read somewhere that um, he was actually doing a lot of the musicians a big favor by featuring a lot of them. There's a lot of little solos in here, flute, bassoon, you know, viola, like all these random solos and uh, court musicians would get paid more if they had a little feature like that. And so apparently he was like helping them out, getting them more money by featuring them. He was a good dude. That's super cool. Yeah, he was a good dude. Yep. There's lots of great Haydn stories and I'm looking forward to sharing more in the future.
2: very noble there's also was was Haydn a humble character do you happen to yeah. know I mean I know he was he was obviously paid well and he was mm-hmm. very well known through in his during his time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but was he a humble character?
1: Yeah I think so I I, I, I think he was well loved you know and you know you don't say that about Beethoven. You say that about his music is well-loved, but you don't go around saying that Beethoven was like everybody's favorite guy, you
2: know? (laughs) Yeah, there's something really sincere about that piece, which I find really attractive. And as I was trying to think of a wine that would mirror a minuet and trio, I couldn't think of a better one other than a Wachau Riesling from a producer that in a restaurant usually commands... On the low end of things, uh, over $100. On a high end of things, they can get into the three and $400 if they're aged. Um, and so to choose a Riesling that is worth its price tag. But um, that is, you really can't find anything wrong with it. You know, it's very proper. It comes from a family that's been in the region for, I want to say, like at least the 1700s. Um, and they've been making wine since the 1700s. So they're well endowed with great holdings. Um, you know, they obviously have a uh, lordship of analogy skills. Um, of what the, skills? Just like analogy, excuse me. Analogy skills, like the ability to make wine. Okay. And to shepherd wine um, okay. in a cellar uh, under their belt. And so I chose a, a Riesling that is of a, um, it's, from the village of Wussendorf, uh, it's from a site called Kirschweg, which is on kind of sandy, uh, alluvial, bedrock type of soils. Um, it's just north of the Donau, or the Danube, uh, in the Wachau, and just scores and wow. pours.
1: So this is, This okay. is
2: our blue chip reasoning. This is our blue minuet chip. and trio in a glass.
1: Cheers. Cheers. It smells very clean. It smells like it just got polished. Mm. You know what I mean?
2: Yep. And if you notice that, like the common thread you'll notice in Riesling, that you that acid, yeah, off, just is twenty years in a cellar.
1: No really? problem.
2: Yeah, it's it's acid is off the oh. charts. So this wine is um, now we're drinking a wine that's five years old, um, and it is like. It's got like a dark kind of straw color. It's not going at mm-hmm. all into the gold spectrum yet. But one thing for those of you that have had Riesling, you've noticed that a lot of times this sort of, without throwing a negative inflection, it's got like a... um or inference, it's got like a, this petrol kind of gassy nose, mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. very common with Rieslings, especially German and Austrian Rieslings. Riesling, so that's something that you'll notice as a common thread. Okay. Um,
1: Between the two that we're going to taste today? Correct. Okay.
2: But you'll notice the more you drink um, natural r- versus very pristine Rieslings, the natural ones will still have some of that, but they'll kind of taste more erratic on the palate, and regardless of whether it's slaty soils that sometimes can... You know, geologists will say that this is wrong, but they render like a maybe a slatiness to the palate, to the nose, um, versus one that's not on slaty soils. So, this is very just there isn't an edge that's wrong with this wine. Most of it is done in stainless steel to keep it nice and tight, nice and fruity. It's not going anywhere where the winemaker doesn't want it to go. Um, Normally, it's done with natural yeasts. It looks to me like it's filtered. Um, they may do some non-filtration on some of the wines, uh, but this producer is has about the same amount of holdings as the next producer, so it's not like necessarily this is a bigger producer. It's just this land is very expensive, and the Wachau is like the Napa Valley of Austria, so land is very expensive. Um, and it's It's like a huge name in Austrian raising.
1: Why do you call it a blue chip Riesling?
2: Uh, Blue chip is when a wine is a blue chip wine, they're usually a wine that um, they can be hard to find depending on the region where you live. You know, they can be more celebrated in some regions than others um, or sought after, but um, they sell for a hefty penny usually. And granted, this isn't Austrian Rieslings, usually don't reach. The prices, like blue chip Burgundy, is you know ten grand a bottle. Blue chip Napa Valley Cabernets are three grand a bottle. Austrian Riesling, blue chip Austrian Rieslings, can be in the you know hundred to three hundred dollar category.
1: But somebody says that's a blue chip, like it's like a like a blue chip stock. You can't just be any stock to be considered a blue chip stock on the on the stock market. Um, You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I guess I haven't thought about it that that far but if you know that deep but if you were to say jill can you tell me three blue chip producers from austria i could think of three or four right off the top of my head that are expensive okay that they're not out of reach mm-hmm. but they're out of reach for a lot of people okay. and then but they're not in the category of being like blue chip burgundy
1: yeah, blue yeah. chip bordeaux okay.
2: but it's sort of like a way to say that these are these are for those people
1: okay yeah you know? yeah okay okay i see I see. so what may is well, clearly, just the you know fertileness of the soil and all of those things make the land so expensive. Yeah,
2: all expensive wine regions as a whole, they have a, a background that can support their their price point, we'll say. Mm-hmm. They usually are on a river, and that okay. river has allowed them to have access to vines usually before a lot of other places. And that comes historically from the Romans traveling around and traveling via waterways and planting certain sites first, learning, oh, this site just east on the river is a little bit better than that site just west on the river, and then all of a sudden that site that's just east on the river throughout time has more and more data surrounding its greatness. There's also then word of mouth that it's so great. And so nowadays you can have someone... Everybody's getting pretty keen to the fact that someone could have these same holdings and make shit wine from it, right? Yes. But if you're in Mr. Peekler's hands, where you have had this these holdings for decades if not centuries, then you're obviously you know how to make the wine yes. and how to make the wine well.
1: What other wines are made in that area?
2: Like other grapes? Do you mean? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <One other. laughs> so uh, this producer makes uh, – the most, most of his wine comes from Grunerweltliner or okay. Riesling, but he makes a small amount of Weisbrugunder, otherwise known as Pinot Blanc. Um, and in this region, by and large, Grunerweltliner and Riesling are like kings, queens, however you want to throw that in there, nobility. Mm-hmm. The other Grauburgunder and Weisbrugunder and um Pinot gris, Pinot blanc, and Pinot noir—they uh, are all kind of—they play second fiddle, even though they can be really, really delicious. They—they uh, they don't have the, I guess, just the stigma of be, of greatness that Riesling and Gruner have.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Okay.
2: Should we let's let's uh, let's waltz?
1: Let's waltz. Yes. But we got please. a taste back to back, though. I we, just had questions.
2: It's true. So I I chose this um, because it is a bit more of the second a, wine. Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. The second wine from Germany, from a producer who is, we'll just say it, it's for the people. It's affordable. It is made with hardly any sulfur added. It's natural yeast as well. It's, um, they're most of the time they're unfiltered. They're usually doing things in older wood, um, Austrian and German wood, which is cool. Fud, fuder, as they call it there, or foudre if you're French. Um and the wine is there's not a lot of natural wine in Germany, and Clemens Busch does some of the best stuff. So um, the shop I got these from Henry and Son has a lot of both styles of wine, um, but the majority of the wines in the shop are of this vein, which is super cool. And so you'll notice right away the colors similar Riesling mm-hmm. kind of gets this beautiful dark straw hue. Um, with with a few years on it, and this is a 2013 um, Riesling. It's called Grauenscheifer because of its um, gray slate soils. So, right there, that's one big difference in the nose. But the wine has just a different energy, and it's not necessarily like it's better, but in my opinion, when I smell it, I just get more of like. Like I wanna move and I wanna shake and I wanna like do things and when I when I hear the minuet and trio versus the waltz
1: mm-hmm. or the Vaults. vaults mm vaults It
2: it's very similar
1: context, so cheers.
2: Cheers. You notice that slight butter quality? Yes. Like ghee sort of thing. Is that that's, the wood? Yep, that's the old wood. Um And you'll notice it's got like, it's got acidity, but it's like a quieter acidity, Mm -hmm. but it's...
1: Is it more tannic?
2: Yes. Yes. Nice. (laughs) I just got cheers for that. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) It definitely is more tannic. Mm -hmm. Um, They crush everything by foot. Here. Okay. They do in, at, at this estate as well as wine number one, but they crush um, the wines by foot. There's a little bit of skin macerations and the wood all give more tannin. For sure.
1: You're talking not about human skin, obviously. We're talking grape skins. Just the yes. way you transitioned yes. there from foot stomping <laughs> to, to skin. Definitely
2: grape skins. <laughs> but there's just, there's a different type of. Um, there's a different type of mojo. You know, here we're looking for, of course, typicity, like a place. You know, he mm-hmm. he wants people to taste this and know, he both he and she, um, want you to taste this um, vom Grauen Schiefer and know that it's coming from, you know, just the, the fringes of the middle Mosel, slate soils that fooders used. But it's also, you're getting... This same amount of like a different type of precision.
1: Can you remind for me what footer
2: is again? Footer is thousand uh, liter oak barrels. Okay. And in this okay. case,
1: mostly Austrian or German oak. Okay. Okay. So not as hit you over the head as American oak, correct? Yeah. Yes. I just got another cheat. Yes. Got another cheers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Hmm.
2: Much more tannic.
1: It also, um, it really is more of a party in your mouth. That's a
2: great way to put it. Mm -hmm. I just talked for about 24 minutes, and you could
1: have just said that.
2: (laughs) And that's exactly what it is.
1: Well, let's listen to a party in the... (laughs)
2: Let's. Let's do that. (laughs) Let's do that.
1: Uh, I mean, where should we start? I I gave you two waltzes, and I gave you two waltzes for a very specific reason. Uh, So... Both are fun. Both are for different reasons, though. You know, both had very different roles. Both are late 19th century.
2: Well, let's do do the Tchaikovsky first because it was written for, um, wasn't it the part of Swan Lake, what we're going to listen to, um, was the first act, the beginning of it, Mm -hmm. Prince Siegfried's, it was his birthday, and the day after his birthday, he was going to have this grand... Ball that was um, to celebrate his birthday and to select a bride out of, I don't know, half a dozen princesses or something like that. And that to me sounds like a ball, a party, a bash. (laughs) No, you're just like (laughs) so
1: eeny, meeny, meeny." (laughs) miny, Riesling. All six, (laughs) thank you. Tchaikovsky wrote a handful of ballets, uh, the most famous of which is probably The Nutcracker. Uh, he wrote some waltzes in there that are quite famous and recognizable, that you hear quite a bit around Christmas time. Uh, he also wrote a ballet called Sleeping Beauty that's really popular today, and he did Swan Lake, which was a pretty big flop when he premiered it but is really super well loved now and has great music. They all three all three of those ballets do. Uh, he wrote some really great dance music.. I just wanted to give Tchaikovsky some love cuz I'm hard on him a lot, but this is great. Like, would you not want to dance to this? So, a waltz. <laughs> uh We are in three, four here. It's pretty fast. One, two, three. One, two, three. Little, little brisk. But again, this is ballet, right? This is for ballet. Maybe not the best to demonstrate that waltz was for peasants, but uh, Tchaikovsky is awesome.
2: I mean, let's be honest. Ballet dancers need to be quick on their feet. If they don't, Mm -hmm. mustard they do not cut.
1: That's right. So (laughs) they don't get the job. (laughs) They don't get the job. Uh, So one of the things about a waltz. Uh, again, waltzes popped up fairly early. There are references to waltzes, but we're really, again, talking about the 19th century here for waltzes to really explode into popularity and kind of across the mainstream and through Europe, right? I mean, because Tchaikovsky was a Russian composer. He wrote waltzes. Uh, Chopin wrote lots of waltzes, not even for dancing. Uh, Chopin being a Polish-slash-French composer. Yep. Um, Brahms, German composer, wrote waltzes. Uh, Everybody everybody wrote a waltz, you know? Um, But the kings of the waltz were the Strauss family. Papa Strauss.
2: Didn't they have, like, competition amongst themselves? Like, weren't they, like... They were
1: all very competitive. Yeah. Because in about 1824, uh, two men, Joseph Lanner and... Johann Strauss Sr. Uh, Lanner had a dance band and Johann Strauss Sr. was in it. And Sr. thought, well, this is working out pretty well for him. I could do it too. And literally just copied his idea and started writing dance music. And they stayed buddies. They were friends, but they were still really competitive. And then, you know, Strauss starts pumping out all these kids and three of them were composers as well, although Really, just one of them was a professional musician for for the time, and and even then, staunchly against his father's wishes, was uh, Johann Jr. a and was that, talented musician.
2: Was that like the second, like when they Johann Strauss to him. the
1: second? Okay, yep. Also called the younger, also called Johann Strauss Jr., Johann Strauss II. You'll see it a million different ways. Yeah, Jr. They're all one and the same um but then his two brothers joseph and Eduard, were also composers but they had other day jobs i can't one of them was an engineer and i can't i can't remember what the other one did but um <clears throat> nonetheless they were all composers cool thing about Viennese waltzes, though, and this is what you were asking me about earlier, you sent me a text, because I had mentioned to you that Viennese waltzes, and perhaps I wasn't specific in my mention of it, but the fact that Viennese waltzes uh, aren't just in straight 3-4, they're in 3-4 time, but they futz with the beat on purpose, and it's wonderful it gives us this it gives it this really like almost like scarecrow jank to jankiness to it mm-hmm. uh, and that is the proper way to play a Viennese waltz so you can always tell if the band is doing it right or wrong just based off of how they're doing the second beat basically they anticipate the second beat so instead of like one two three one two it's more like one two three one two. Three, Three, one, two, yeah, (laughs) and and it's super fun because you're like, how the fuck would you dance to that? But it's who cares? It's great. So, the Strauss, again, uh, Johann Strauss Jr. wrote tons of waltzes. They also wrote a lot of polkas and quadrilles and all these other kinds of folky dance kind of things, but mostly waltzes. And I have many favorites. He also wrote a lot of stage music, too. Deflater Mouse is a great little operetta with great music. Such great Music One of my favorite waltzes is one of his most popular waltzes. It's called the Emperor's Waltzes. And I say that because in a Strauss waltz, there are actually more than one waltz in there. So there's four inside this one piece of music. There's four different sections, and they're called waltz one, waltz two, waltz three, waltz four. So we're going to hear a little bit of the Emperor's Waltzes. Let's do it. Yep, from 1889. Johann Strauss Jr., aka Johann Strauss II, and other things. Waltzes often had a slow introduction, not in 3 4 time, which this is not in 3 4 times. This is just a nice, chill, little lovely introduction. Everybody's eyeing each other up. I'm gonna dance with you and get all scandalously close and touch yes. cheeks. <laughs> I love this waltz so much. In particular, the fourth waltz is my probably my favorite, but there's some great cello. Oh, there's just some great, again, he was a brilliant uh, melodic writer and composers always commented on how audiences would leave a concert of his singing his music and how that's what everybody wants to achieve, right? We call that catchy. Catchy. Catchy Catchy tunes. It's all still introduction. We're not in three-four time, right? We're in probably common time or, or cut time or something. Half time, maybe. And it's almost kind of a stuffy intro, which I like about it, too. And isn't that because it was made for... It was written for a couple of emperors, so, yeah. yeah.
2: The Austro-Hungarian meeting the German emperor? Something like
1: that. A couple of kaisers,
2: yeah. yeah. Just a couple of kaisers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going
2: to put this in my glass if you want to taste, smell them side by side and how they just, <coughs> one taste they mm-hmm. so different.
1: Yes. Gorgeous cello solo, which comes back a time or two Just getting into that first waltz. This, this is Waltz One. Yeah. One, two, three. One, two. Tend to have pretty elaborate roadmaps in terms of repeats. You know, they'll repeat sections. They'll have to go back to a different section. It can be a little chaotic. And so, performances now, you know, conductors can take some liberties.
2: And is that is that because they were, you know, when we think of folk dancing, it's very mm-hmm. much like that, where yeah. there's there's a road map so people can just get it on the dance floor. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's <laughs> out there dancing <laughs> yep. for sure.
1: Yep. Yeah, for sure.
2: Well, so I, I wonder if people listening can mm-hmm. feel the difference because I this I do think is and granted it was created for with this like with this noble handshake sort of regional slash um, national yeah. sort of inclination to it
1: yeah the reason that Strauss wrote it yeah
2: e- yeah sorry a, a long winded that's okay way of saying yes that's okay but good. so what I'm wondering is. Even so, does it sound more like, uh, you know, uppity for people? Because the last one I could definitely tell, but I wonder if, you know, hopefully most of you will be able to definitely tell the difference between the two. Do you mind if we... (laughs) Sorry, I'm making faces over here to the music. Do you mind if we go back just for a brief moment? (laughs)
1: Yeah, to the minuet? Yes. Yeah, Yeah, sure.
2: To the the Haydn, to, to give a little dimension.
1: Very proper, the minuet, written for an orchestra full of court musicians, not a dance band, right? I mean, let's face it. I mean, the dance band, I'm sure, had wonderfully virtuosic musicians in it as well, but different, different point.
2: And with that, I say to scores
1: and pores. To Scores and Pores.
0: Thank you for listening to Episode 8 of Scores and Pores with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and and Instagram at scores and pours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scores and pours, edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan, and I'm Paul Beach. Scores and Pores is a production of June Media Incorporated.